Good morning and welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, Texas. My name is Susan Yarbrough and I am the very lucky student intern minister in this dynamic and activist congregation. Our lay leader today is Carol Ramsey. First Unitarian Universalist Church is a church of deeds, not creeds. And we're part of a liberal religious tradition that encourages the application of reason to faith. I'd like to extend an especially warm welcome to those of you who are visiting for the first time. Part of our tradition holds that there is a divine spark in everyone. So in keeping with that tradition, please take a moment to to turn to those around you and greet their spark with the warmth of your own spark. The flaming chalice is a symbol of our faith, and as we light it at the beginning of every worship service, we say together the words printed in your bulletin. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship today is reading number 560 in back of your gray hymnal. It was written by journalist and social activist Dorothy Day who co-founded the Catholic Worker Movement in the United States. And we'll do this reading in unison. People say, what is the sense of our small effort? They cannot see that we must lay one brick at a time, take one step at a time. A pebble cast into a pond causes ripples to spread in all directions. Each one of our thoughts, words, and deeds is like that. No one has the right to sit down and feel hopeless. There's too much work to do. Unitarian Universalism is sometimes referred to as a religion or a faith or a movement or a denomination. But no matter what it's called, it welcomes and embraces and draws from many wisdom sources, such as Judaism, Christianity, non-theistic humanism, Buddhism, Hinduism, neo-paganism, and other earth- and nature-centered teachings. Interestingly enough, studies have shown that almost 90% of us who call ourselves Unitarian Universalists were not born into it, but came here from other religions, faiths, movements, and denominations because of Unitarian Universalism and inclusiveness and because it does not posit a rigid creed that we have to agree with. But we do have common values, traditions, and principles that guide us, and each of our churches develops a mission statement that we remind each other of every Sunday by saying it together. Here at First Unitarian Universalist, our mission statement is on the upper wall to your left. Please join me in affirming it now in unison. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading today is the poem, Fire, by Quaker leader and teacher Judy Sorum Brown. What makes a fire burn is space between the logs, a breathing space. Too much of a good thing, too many logs packed in too tight can douse the flames almost as surely as a pail of water could. So building fires requires attention to the spaces in between, 
as much as to the wood. When we are able to build open spaces in the same way we have learned to pile on the logs, then we can come to see how it is fuel and the absence of fuel together that make fire possible. We only need to lay a log lightly from time to time. A fire grows simply because the space is there, with openings in which the flame that knows just how it wants to burn can find its way. Every week in our service, we have a time of quietness together, and each of us enters it in his or her or their own way. For me, it's with prayer, and for others, it's through meditative stillness or simply following our breath to a place of calmness. After today's prayer, you're invited to light candles of joy, sorrow, hope, memory, concern, or celebration, and simple directions that will easily accommodate everyone are found in italics in your order of service. And now as we enter silence together and gratefully gather the prayers and concerns of the people, I add my own to them. Creator Spirit, both human and divine, teach us to examine our lives so that we may know our own hearts, our souls, our limitations, and our gifts. Break up the hard clots of our ego, our reluctance to lift up our hearts to each other, our fear of encountering the sacred, our resistance to grace, and move us into a deeper and wider stream of life. As we direct our eyes and tune our ears to the needs of others, accept our imperfect intentions. Strengthen our bodies and our minds so that we may heal and repair ourselves and all parts of creation. Do not let us give up. Spare us from despair. Shine your light on our next step and show us how to be of use. It's good to be here with all of you, and I thank you for being here and for letting me be here. In seminary parlance, you are referred to as my teaching congregation, and Reverend Barnhouse is called my teaching pastor. Every time I say either one of those phrases, I'm reminded of how much you're teaching me every day, and I'm really grateful for that. Over the past year and a half, I've preached about a dozen times at various Unitarian Universalist congregations in Central Texas, and each sermon has taught me over and over the truth of the saying that we preach or teach what we need to learn. That's been true of sermons I've given about welcoming strangers, about sacred cosmos and religious naturalism, about hope, and about gratitude. And and today, here's another one I need to learn and to hear, and it's about the fire of commitment, that metaphorical substance we and many of our UU congregations say we carry with us as we extinguish the chalice and leave our sanctuaries every Sunday. I imagine I'm like a lot of people in that fire both fascinates and scares me. 
I didn't realize how much until early on in my legal career when I was doing criminal defense work in New York City. I had a client that I took to trial uh, over my best suggestions not to, and he was convicted of arson. I was pretty convinced that the evidence was insufficient to convict him, so I took the case up on appeal, and to my everlasting surprise, I won the case, and the conviction was reversed. What happened was that the lawyers that I worked with immediately dubbed me the arson specialist, and on my birthday that year, uh, a friend in the office gave me a shingle that said, Susan L. Yarbrough, attorney at law, parenthesis, firebugs are us. <laughs> so uh, I realized then that fire really does fascinate and scare me. It can warm and it can destroy. It can light the way and it can get quickly out of control. It signifies passion that motivates and passion that can consume. Like earth and air and water, fire can be both wonderful and sustaining, as well as random and frightening. And I'm sure that all of us ha have had both kinds of experiences with all four of these sacred elements. Fire of commitment is one of those appealing phrases, like social justice, that sounds so good when we say it and hear it, but we may be gliding over it and I want to talk a bit about that today and try to sort out my own mind and heart because I'm often one of the gliders. My high school Latin teacher always made a big point of looking at the etymology of English words to see the Latinate roots buried in many of them. He was also the teacher who frequently said, Tempest keeps fugiting. Um, <laughs> he was difficult, but I liked him a lot. Um, the word commitment derives from the Latin adverb com, meaning together, and the verb mitere, meaning to put or to send. So commitment is a putting together or a sending together, a missioning, if you will. And I think we as Unitarian Universalists get this, and it's what we mean when we say the words fire of commitment and think of our work together for social justice, for growing our denomination, for spreading the word about the beacon and the lighthouse that religious liberalism can play in creating a haven and a makerspace for people who fall everywhere on the spectrum, from theists like myself to non-theists like many members and, and leaders of this and other congregations. Amazingly, in spite of our great differences in theology and socialization, we often build and sustain huge fires of commitment such as our work to dismantle racism and to promote marriage equality. And the reason we can create these bonfires is because each of us provides our own spark. But each of us, if we're completely honest with ourselves, sometimes senses that our individual spark has gone out, that we are no longer as interested in or committed to what was once an important issue in our hearts and our souls and our congregations that we are, to put it bluntly, burned out. I recognize this in myself a lot, and as I found myself in seminary with classmates who are mostly in their 30s and whose fires of com commitment burn very brightly, I've often felt a bit um, ashy. <laughs> and I've wondered whether I, as the oldest student in seminary, and older even than all my professors, the president, the provost, and the dean, <laughs> 
whether I have a place to serve or even a place at the table in this dynamic and activist denomination. For example, in the summer of 2014, when the Federal Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals was sitting in Chicago and hearing arguments about a marriage equality case at the time when my seminary's August convocation was in progress, a number of students engaged in a To the Barricades action, Don Dyer standing on the side of love yellow t-shirts, and headed for the plaza outside of the courthouse to demonstrate in favor of the plaintiffs. Not me, I thought. As my grandmother would say, it was hot as Hades. The wind coming off Lake Michigan was making the city feel like the Sahara. I hate crowds. I paid my barricades dues in the 70s and 80s on behalf of the civil rights and anti-war and feminist and gay rights movements. I gave no time or attention whatsoever to pro- and anti-immigration demonstrators when I worked as a judge. And marriage equality in all parts of the United States is only a matter of time. This demonstration, I thought, is pointless. It's a waste of the younger students' time and energy. It will have no effect on the court's decision. Why are they bothering? But when those students returned from the courthouse and I saw the fire of commitment in their eyes and saw how they, most of them heterosexuals, had eagerly gone to show their support for a cause that would affect me and enable a dream of mine to come true, I felt a lot of remorse about my own jadedness, my own lack of enthusiasm, my own betrayal of past and future generations who have put and will put so many things on the line, and my own private case of burnout. So this led me to think long and hard about what is the fire of commitment for me and for you and for us as Unitarian Universalists. And if we're feeling burned out about something, how can we stir the ashes, find a live coal, and restore our spiritual flames? One of the many books on the required reading list for the MFC, the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, that determines who will be accepted into Unitarian Universalist ministry is A Feminist Ethic of Risk by Sharon D. Welch. Dr. Welch is the provost of Meadville Lombard and also my faculty advisor, and the book was required reading in my first-year seminary internship, which I served at a drop-in shelter and free clinic for homeless street kids in Austin. And here again, my jadedness made an unpleasant appearance as I clicked the Add to Cart button on Amazon and thought, no, not another book about feminism, in addition to the dozens I've already read over the past 45 years. But the book is really not so much about feminism as it is about letting go of outcomes so that we can engage with joy and enthusiasm in the hard work of healing and repairing the world. It's about knowing that the creation of systemic justice and fairness will not be accomplished in our lifetime, yet deciding to care and to act, although there is no possibility of success. It's about recognizing that just knowing about suffering humanity makes us all accountable, but that solutions are complex. Our linear Western minds want so much to believe in the grand efficacy of everything we do and plan, 
that we end up operating from an ethic of control that emphasizes results instead of an ethic of risk. And as scary as an ethic of risk may sound, its beauty lies in the fact that it's an ethic that is relational and communicative, an ethic that loves differences and moves toward them instead of trying to identify the sameness among us, an ethic that demands action and accountability, yet treats every failure to reach the goal as a creative and generative event. An ethic of risk is an ethic that does not require the ability to produce an answer. It is grounded in the patience and courage to hold closely the pain and ambiguity that can transform us. And it's an ethic that understands that becoming easily discouraged and burned out is the privilege of those accustomed to too much power. Let me say that last part again because I need to hear it. An ethic of risk understands that becoming easily discouraged and burned out is the privilege of those accustomed to too much power. This kind of risk-taking ethic is an incendiary device that's fashioned only in community. It is not one individual solving the problems of the others, but a group of people engaging in partial, partial solutions that will create conditions for further partial solutions by others. It is not a search for assurances of success or comprehensive solutions or demonstrations of rightness or the most clever organizational blueprint, but instead it's a commitment to persistence and cooperation and the teaching power of failure. The French novelist Gustave Flaubert once said, perfection is the enemy of the good. And the corollary of that is to insist on success is to ensure that nothing will change. There are so many things I want for myself and for this messed up racist, sexist, heterosexist, ageist, ableist, and classist society. And when I don't see them happening or materializing, I'm inclined to head for the comfort of my apartment, stack up the furniture behind the door, pop open a couple of Diet Pepsis, and sink into that kind of cultured, middle-class despair, typical of someone accustomed to too much power and too much privilege. But when I can be with a congregation like this, and sense the forward dynamic of your communal efforts to stoke the fires of commitment to social justice, to religious education, to meaningful worship, and to church building, I feel the breath of the Spirit blowing, and I understand what it is to have my own ashes stirred, to find a live coal, and to restore my own spiritual flames, just like when I and my cabin mates used to blow on dying fires during summer camp. I did not join 400 other Unitarian Universalists last spring at the 50th anniversary of the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, that that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act back in 1965. The sense of being in a place like that was very attractive to me, as I'm sure it is to many people. But I still don't like crowds, 
And I knew that my two artificial knees on a four-hour trek with 70,000 other people across a bridge named for a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan would leave me physically sore, mentally peevish, and very depleted in several ways. But what I decided would be the best form of commitment for me, my way of missioning together with other Unitarian Universalists and people of color and white people of conscience working for the end of racism, would be to total up what I would have spent for travel, lodging, and food, and then give that amount to an organization that funds college scholarships for African-American students. Definitely not a barricades or a large thing to do. But when I did it, I realized in ways I never had before that the fire of commitment can take so many forms, from a small financial contribution to marches and demonstrations and calls to action, to educating ourselves about a cause and sharing our knowledge about it in classes and in casual conversations, to expressing encouragement and gratitude to people and to institutions for whatever form of support they provide, and to holding all those who participate with their bodies in goodwill, in positive thoughts, in sustaining prayers, and in what Reverends Rebecca Parker and Rita Nakashima Brock have called appreciative care. As in other acts of repair and healing, it is altogether moral to start small and to stay small. And having the fire of commitment does not require you or me to be on the front line or to do big things, for it includes keeping others alive with the breath of love, care, acknowledgement, and gratitude. In his keynote address to the Unitarian Universalists gathered in Selma last March, one of my teachers, the Reverend Dr. Mark Morrison-Reed, said these words, Why are we here? We are here to consecrate ourselves. To be transformed, we must commit and engage. We must let the awkwardness, anxiety, and relationship reach in and change us, and we can do that because we have the support of beloved community. As the concept of beloved community has become more graspable and palpable for me, I've come to see it not as meaning that we all have the same fire about the same issues, or that we all commit to the same thing, or that we all have similar ways of tending the flame. Instead, what it means to me is that we have an ethic of talent-appropriate, energy-appropriate, and age-appropriate participative engagement, which says, if you're here, join in and rise in body or spirit. If you're inspired, commit. And if you're disappointed, work to make it better. Living an ethic of risk that asks me to let go of outcomes, to stop thinking about results, to celebrate small partial solutions, and to embrace pain and ambiguity and failure is so hard for me. And as I've tried to think and feel my way into this new way of doing, I've often asked myself, where will this take us and what good will it serve? And aren't we really better off with a plan and with measurable results? And then a few months ago, I came across a remarkable gem from the Franciscan priest Richard Rohr, who said this, 
the ego clearly prefers an economy of merit where, where we can divide the world in, into winners and losers to an economy of grace where merit or worthiness loses all meaning. That's it, I thought. The result of letting go of outcomes is letting go of measurements. And the heart-centered and spirit-filled result of living an ethic of risk is creating an economy of grace, just as this congregation did when it risked giving sanctuary to Sulma and created an enormous economy of grace for her and for us. As we step out of this room today into the warmth of a Texas spring and into the risks and joys of being in community, may we carry with us the fire of commitment that turns our congregations from sanctuaries of individualism into communities of awe and wonder. May we never lose sight of our deep social understanding of ourselves or lapse into self-cherishing ways of thinking. May we live an ethic that says that our humanity is more powerful and more important than our expertise, an ethic that trades a desire for mastery for an experience of mystery. And as we set aside our individual ego-invested dreams and plans and desires for certain outcomes, may we know that we are creating an economy of grace, that we are always tending our own and each other's flames, and that we are always, always doing so in the presence of what is holy and what is divine. Our formal worship today is almost ended, and in celebration of our time together, we extinguish the chalice with the words printed in the order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Now, may the grace of the Spirit continue to bless this warm and welcoming congregation. May the congregation know its shared identity as people of risk and commitment. And in Hebrew, we say, Let us bless the source of life whose flame kindles our commitment to search for ever more ways of living our freedom and sharing our love. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.